Hey guys, my name is Brad. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life Church, and I want to welcome you to our online teachings. One of our core convictions as a church is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. Now, I know that for some of us, coming into a church building might be intimidating, it might be scary, and I get that. But I want you to know that there is always a place for you here at New Life and that you were made for real in-person community. We meet on Sundays in downtown Wayland. You can check out our website for more information on service times. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through his word. Love you guys. Well, good morning. Trent kicked me off the main stage, so uh, and now I am on this stage. You know, I just, uh, even before I begin this morning, I just want to thank um, Trent specifically and so many different volunteers over this last week who have um, not just flipped this worship center, like you'll notice your favorite coffee stain isn't there anymore uh, by your feet. Literally had somebody come up to me and be like, how am I going to know where my seat is now that my coffee stain's gone? Uh, but also even just the Essential Store grand opening this last week. It was just so cool to see, Yeah. So incredibly cool just to see so many different volunteers and people from our community and our church come together. And that store is officially open now. So Tuesdays and Wednesdays, it's open. Continue spreading the word about what God wants to do in that in our community. Uh, We're in the last week this morning of a series called Raising the Perfect Parent, where we are talking about parenting. And I believe that if there is any sermon in this series that's going to apply to pretty much all of us, whether we're parents or not, it's going to be what we talk about today. In fact, today, I believe, is probably one of the hardest things that we could talk about in our families. I think it's one of the most pervasive issues in families, and also probably the issue that carries some of the most shame for some of us in this place and watching online. And so I want to begin this morning um, lighthearted, because we're not going to stay there, uh, and uh, just uh, ask you, isn't it crazy how much parenting has transformed over the years and over the generations? Right? So you used to, when you put your baby to bed, how did you lay them down in bed? On their stomach. Now, safe sleep says you lay them on your back. Even things like drop-down sides on cribs, like I'm looking at fellow foster parents over there. We know all of those rules because we live them every day, but you don't do drop sides on your cribs. In fact, the other day I was surfing online, and this picture came up on Facebook of something called auto straps. This is a real thing in the Sears 1961 catalog. How many of you remember Sears catalogs? (laughs) Keep your tot safe in the front seat. I remember when my dad was a kid, he used to, he would tell me about how they'd go on long road trips in their sedan and he'd lay like in that back window area. They called him little Tommy temper tantrum. And he'd lay in that back window area and just fall asleep for hours and hours. Isn't it crazy how things have transformed in our families from generation to generation? And yet, as many things as have transformed from generation to generation, some things in our families are not transformed, they're transmitted. They're passed on from generation to generation. Quirks, habits, tempers, sin issues. And if you look at the very first family ever in Scripture, you can see this so clearly play off from generation to generation. You have, you have Adam and Eve who, who begin their lives in perfect communion with God. They have everything they need in this perfect garden. And yet, in the midst of temptation, they attempt to put themselves in the place of God. 
And sin enters the picture. And then just one generation later, we go from perfect union with God to brotherly murder. And that's where I want to look at today is the story of Cain because it's into this family story that God speaks what I believe are some of the most chilling words in scripture to Cain. He is contemplating murdering his brother Abel. And this is what God says to Cain right here in Genesis 4. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. The translation that I usually preach from ESV says, sin is crouching at your door. It is contrary to you. You must rule over it. See, we often think of sin as, as an individual problem. My personal choices, my individual decisions, and that's very true. Sin is a personal problem, but sin in Scripture is just as often spoken about as a disease that goes from generation to generation to generation. Sin is a disease that can infect entire families, entire countries, entire churches. It's infectious. And the question I want to ask as we begin today is, what does it look like when sin is crouching at the door of our families? What does it look like when sin is desiring to have our families? Well, in Cain's case, it's him snapping and murdering his brother. It's this explosion, this kind of volcano-type approach of just, I'm going to let my feelings, I'm going to let my desires take over, and I'm going to snap, and that's where he kills Abel. Now, I'm guessing murder, hopefully, is not a common issue in your family. Maybe it happened before, but hopefully it's not a common issue. But, man, I feel like we have these moments all the time in our families where sin is crouching at our door, and maybe you came from one of the most explosive families that you can imagine. Maybe you currently live in an explosive family, and there's all these times where sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and sometimes we give in. The other day, my daughter, six years old, decided it'd be a good idea to take a Sharpie marker and write her name on our seat of our car so that she wouldn't forget what seat is hers. Sin is crouching at your door, Dad. <laughs> and that's just a funny issue, obviously, but there's, there's deeper ones that we deal with. Maybe, maybe your kid lies to you or they break your trust, and that, that feeling of disrespect is a right feeling to feel as a parent, but our, our reaction is so over the top. It is explosive as a result Sin is crouching at our door. Maybe you have kids who are constantly comparing your parenting style to your ex's parenting style, and you just want to let them have it sometimes and explode. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand here, but how many of us feel like this explosive kind of volcano eruption is kind of something that just lives in our families? And in fact, so much of what we do, I'll be honest, this is, this is probably the one sermon that my family needs the most, that the generations that I come from need the most, is this idea that sin is crouching at our door, it desires to have us, and we must rule over it. See, in this moment, for some of us, our temptation is to match the same intensity it's to elevate, it's to escalate, it's to explode, erupt, scream, yell, because it can feel like the only way to get attention sometimes and express how we feel as a parent. You ever have moments in your families where maybe your kid or your spouse does something and it really kind of deserved like a, a reaction of a two on the Richter scale, but you give it a 10 on the Richter scale? 
right? How many of us can relate to that? You, we call these 10-2 reactions. In fact, one of my counselors that I met with, I just saw him last night just hanging out, and he began talking about this whole idea of 10-2 reactions and how so many times in our lives, in our families, something deserves a 2, but we give it a 10. We explode. We kind of escalate. And what he has said to me that I've never forgotten is that there is always something beneath the surface at play with that. It's never just what it seems to be on the surface. Anger, in fact, is a secondary emotion. Many of us have heard that before. It's not a primary emotion. So when we express anger or when we explode, there's something under the surface at play with that. And this is the hard truth that I want us to hear this morning, even as we dive in. That sin that is not transformed is transmitted from fathers to sons mothers to daughters, siblings. Sin that is not transformed is transmitted from generation to generation. And we see this happen in the very first family in Scripture, an all-out civil war that breaks out between Cain and his brother Abel. But I got to tell you, it doesn't stop there. It continues to escalate. He's right after what happens with Cain killing his brother Abel as God comes to Cain and in an act of mercy, in an attempt to break this cycle of violence, this is what God says and does with Cain in verse 15 of Genesis 4. He says this, Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. So here you have God saying, I'm going to protect Cain, and if anybody does harm to him, I'm going to repay him seven times over, sevenfold. Then you fast forward a few generations after that, and you read this kind of boring genealogy for a couple verses, and you arrive at a guy named Lamech, who is Cain's descendant, a few generations after Cain. And this is what happens with Lamech in verse 23 of the same chapter. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zilhah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. By the way, pro tip, husbands, don't talk to your wives like that. <laughs> Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Don't miss this last verse here. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, like we just read in verse 15, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. In other words, what we're seeing happen in these sin patterns in this family is that you have Cain, whose revenge, whose vengeance is sevenfold, and Lamech, who takes that and basically explodes it. In other words, you bring a firecracker to this fight, I'm going to bring a nuclear warhead. I am going to blow this thing up. You bring a knife, I'm bringing a gun. You wound me, I kill you. That's what Lamech is saying here. I am going to explode this thing. In your face. You see, Lamech, he twists what God does for Cain and he uses it as an excuse to let sin just be transmitted and transmitted and transmitted from generation to generation. And I don't have to tell many of you where that leads. Even as I look at our world this last week, with Afghanistan and things like that. I mean, to think that these are not all interconnected to just the patterns of generations of sin just playing themselves out, they are. You can trace them back. And, and I just want to ask us today, are there areas in our family where an offense that deserved a two reaction has become this explosive 
10 issue all the time in our families. Maybe for you, it's a lack of gratitude from your kids. Your kids act entitled, and it just meets a boiling point for us as parents. We just erupt at the snap of a finger or the drop of a hat. Maybe it's a mess left in the living room or coloring on the walls. My kids are obsessed with coloring on the walls right now. Speaking of small groups, if you were to come into my home, like it would be art all over the walls, not in a good way. But what happens when that meets an explosion? There's obviously, that's a two issue, but it gets a 10 reaction. Or uh, maybe when your kid mouths off to you and it's met with the full force of your wrath. Maybe it's your, your, car gets, your kid gets into a car accident and you're not actually that concerned about their well-being, you're more angry about the car itself. Right? That's a 10-2 reaction. Where do those come from? Where do those come from in our families? Well, it comes from trans- sin that is just transmitted. It comes from wounds deep under the surface that have just been transmitted and festered from generation to generation. And I will be the first to tell you, I have some of those at play in my life. I have some of those at play in my family. Chances are you do too. Maybe you grew up in a home where your your parents only knew one parenting style and it was zero to 60 in 1.5 seconds. Just constant explosion. Or maybe you grew up in a family where you were overlooked, you were not seen, and so the only way for you to assert your presence has been to take on that approach yourself, to escalate and erupt and explode everything that comes your way as a cry for attention, as a cry to get people to notice you and respect you. I I talked about this on social media, but I, uh, I started going to counseling again Uh, for my own self, because pastors uh, help people carry a lot of their own weights, but we carry a lot of our own weights as well. And uh, so I started going to counseling and just talking through um, just some of the different things that I've been processing in the world. Um, And just even off script here, total transparency, I've I've struggled with a little bit of anger over this last season. Um, Just anger at the the place that our world is in. Um, Anger at the the obsession that so many in the church seem to have about issues that are secondary. And uh, I just, I needed someone to process through that with. And uh, so we sat down and we began to just talk through some of the stuff that I've I've been navigating and and kind of processing through and thinking through. And my counselor, who's who's also a men's pastor at a local church, um, has just always been so helpful to give me frameworks through which to see the world, right? That's the point of counseling, is to see the world through certain frameworks. And one of the things that he talked about with me, and this has been so, even just influential in the last few weeks for me, is that there are three ways, essentially, that we transmit our sin or transmit our wounds in our families. Three ways. The first way is that for many of us, we fight our wounds. We put our heads down. We do the work. If we constantly erupt, we feel like we're failing as a parent. And so in order to kind of combat that, we just, we put our head down and we plow through and we do the work. And so we're driven by success. And we're driven by hard work, which is not a bad thing. It's not. We're driven by earthly performance. Maybe you grew up in a home where as long as you got good grades, your dad's temper was kept at bay. Second, your grades started to slip, you were in for an all-out nuclear war. See, we end up, in this case, believing that our value and love is earned by our performance. We can transmit that message to our kids and to the people around us so incredibly easily. 
That's the first way. We, we fight our wounds. We, we fight our sin. Second one here is some of us, we, we wear them. We wear our wounds. We turn inward. We agree with our wounds. This is who I am. This is who I will always be. Those who love me can accept it, and those who don't love me, I don't want anything to do with. And let me tell you here, Paul in Philippians said, enemies of the cross find their glory and their shame. Enemies of the cross are the ones who wear their wounds for everybody to see. There's a difference between wearing your wounds and being vulnerable about your wounds. See, we can, we can get to a place where our wounds have become such a part of our identity that anybody who's willing to walk alongside us and challenge us in those becomes our enemy. We want nothing to do with those people. I gotta tell you, those are horrible friends. People that don't challenge us, people that don't push us, people that aren't willing to speak into our lives truthfully and with love. Man, even as Brandon just talked about, like that's why community is so important in the church. Right? There's conversations that we need to be having in our church that can't happen on Sunday mornings. They need a deeper, more intimate place to happen. That's why small groups, even as we look into this fall, and I know small groups have been pretty chaotic the last year because of COVID and things getting mixed up, but I got to tell you, invest yourself in a group of people in this church in the fall. Invest yourself deeply. I'm really excited about some of the men's groups that we're going to have. I desire to be a part of a group of men where we can hold each other accountable in this and speak the truth and love in each other's lives. Why this stuff matters so much. So that's number two. We can... We can wear our wounds. The third one here is we can avoid our wounds. Maybe you come from a family where everything is swept under the rug. <laughs> we can avoid them by self-medicating, binging. We can avoid them by turning to idols and turning away in every possible way that you can imagine. We can, we can avoid our wounds as people. There's a problem, though, with all three of these. All three of these mean that sin is just transmitted but not actually transformed. Sin is just passed on or overlooked or swept to the side but not actually transformed in our lives. This is the story of Lamech. This is the story of Lamech's descendants. This is your family story. This is my family story that sin that is not transformed is simply just transmitted. It's just passed on. So there's a glaringly obvious question at this point. <laughs> how is sin transformed? How, how do we experience this transformation that comes? And the easy answer would be Jesus. <laughs> and yes, that is true. But I want to direct your attention to a specific conversation that Jesus has that I think really speaks into this specific issue in our families. It's a conversation where his disciple Peter comes up to him and he asks him a question in Matthew 18. And I want you to watch this interaction here, this, this conversation that happens. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, here's what I think Peter is doing here in this moment. I think Peter is, is seeing this idea of seven, which if you're familiar with Scripture, is a common number throughout Scripture representing wholeness and completeness. And so Peter is almost coming up to Jesus, and I imagine his, his chest puffed up a little bit. 
And he's, he's ready to get a pat on the, on the head or whatever. And good boy, Peter. And he says, Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Like completely, holy? <laughs> Jesus, and by the way, this is the same number God gave Cain, right? Seven times I'll avenge him. Jesus comes to Peter, and, and what does he say? He says, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. What Jesus is doing here? He's pointing Peter back to Cain and Lamech, a sin that is transmitted from generation to generation to generation can actually be transformed by the person. What he's saying to Peter is that in me, in Christ, you have every tool you will ever need to stop sin from being transmitted. Not by trying harder, not by your own ability, not by your own performance, but in Jesus alone. What Jesus is saying is that sin that's not transformed can stop with you. Do you believe that in your families? Or are you just kind of like, yeah, but, but the real world, as soon as I walk out this door, I'm just going to explode again and again. And that might be so. But God actually desires to do a work in our families that's not just short-term, but long-term. That he desires that we would have not just a seven times view of what he can do and transform in our families, but a 77 times view of what he can do in our families. That for Jesus... For Jesus, he actually believed that what he came to do, the way he came to live, the way he died, and his resurrection is powerful enough to touch even the most broken areas of our families. Amen. Sin does not have to be transmitted through you. You can be the one who understands so deeply the love and forgiveness of Christ in your life that that is, that that is what's transmitted out of you. See, the hardest part is I can't make someone else repent or forgive. Some of you grew up with horrible abandonment by parents, by fathers, by mothers. And we cannot change what was done. We can't force them to do anything. But what we can do is choose to forgive. Choose to loosen the grip around that person's neck. Experience freedom. What we can do is allow the work of Jesus to take such deep root in our lives that those tend to reactions that we often have, and those are transformed, those are healed, that Jesus actually enters into those places and can do something about them. You see, forgiveness, it cancels the debt. It cancels the sin. You cannot control what was done to you, but you can control what you do with what was done to you. I want to say that again, because that needs to sink in for some of us. You can't control what was done to you, but you can control what you do with what was done to you. And some of us, some of us need to take what was done to us to the cross of Jesus Christ and lay it there and allow him to transform it. Some of us need to take that and say, God, I don't have what is, what, what is needed within me on my own to transform this, to see healing come to this. But you do, God. You do. That's what your cross 
That's not there anymore because we just replaced carpet. It'll be back. But that's what your cross does in our lives. Heals some things. It transforms some things. It agitates some things that have become settled and comfortable. We uh, ran a course called Alpha this past spring, and uh, one of the most powerful stories for me that came out of that was the story of this woman named Corey Temboom. And many of you have probably heard of Corey Temboom uh, before. Here she is. She actually she passed away in 1983, but Corey Temboom was a Dutch Christian who lived during the Holocaust, and Corey Temboom. Um, is well known for hiding Jews during that time, right? So that Nazi Germany couldn't find them, couldn't place them in concentration camps. Eventually, she was caught. And her and her brother, I'm sorry, her sister and her dad were put in Ravensbrück concentration camp. It was in that concentration camp that her dad and her sister passed away. They died at the hands of Nazis. And Corey Temboom, she survived. She eventually got out and, and started doing ministry and just speaking to these different crowds, speaking about her experience, speaking about the pain of, of navigating through this. And she recounts after, after one specific talk that she was giving to the crowd, uh, the crowd was kind of dispersing. And she could see a man whose face she would never forget walking up towards her. And in the moment, she said, that is the man I was paraded by naked as my sister was dying. That is a Nazi officer in the concentration camp that I was in, and I will never forget his face. And I want to read you these words of hers. I want to read directly from her words about what the power of transformed sin can do in our lives. I want you to hear this what she says. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment, I saw the overcoat and brown hat. The next, a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush, a huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. This is what he said, a fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. By the way, that's what she preached, that God's grace actually puts our sins in the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me. Of course. How could he remember one prisoner among those thousands of women? But I remembered him. In the leather crop swinging from his belt, it was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I had become a Christian. 
And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. Again, the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed hours as I was standing there, wrestling with the most difficult thing I have ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it only as a commandment of God, not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily lived experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able also to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, no matter what the physical scars. Those who nursed their bitterness became invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that too. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one that stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced on my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, my brother. I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner, and I had never known God's love so intensely as I did in that moment. You don't have the power to forgive on your own. He goes on to say that. But when you have the power of Christ in you, you understand that the thing she forgave in that Nazi officer is just a sliver of what God has forgiven in you. And the only response out of that, the only response out of that is to let forgiveness transform every single circle that we're a part of. 77 times, not seven times, 77 times. So as we, as we close and as we worship, we're going to partake in communion, but I, I, I want to challenge us this morning and, and just ask this question as we close. The question is this. What could forgiveness transform in your family? Not talking about reconciliation. Talking about forgiveness. What could forgiveness transform that is broken in your family? Could it change? You know, I imagine some of us are here sitting in this room and we hold on to this grudge against our parents that will not quit. And our arms around their neck and we're strangling them. And for some of us this morning, we need to invite God into that place and say, God, give me the power that only comes through you to forgive my mom or my dad or the person that hurt me so badly. Give me that power, God. I need it. I don't have it apart from you. I believe slowly, maybe not instantly, but slowly, 
He desires to do a work in your heart. Where it's just like this release. <laughs> you don't need to erupt anymore. Because you understand what forgiveness means. I imagine there's, there's other of us who maybe have kids who are grown and we just carry so much shame and regret about the way that we parented those kids. I have family members who are in that situation. We look back on those parenting years and it's just, it's filled with shame and regret and wondering if I could have done things differently. And maybe you have a great relationship with your kids today, but you just carry so much junk with you. Maybe God is calling you to actually forgive yourself. That you know what? I have forgiven you. I need you to forgive yourself. I need you to be released from this. And then what perhaps is the hardest one here of all? Some of us are in the midst of a civil war in our families. And the nuclear bombs are just flying right and left. Some of us need to come to the altar this morning and just repent. Men, I want to talk to some of you. It is time men in our church manned up. I see a lot of weak men out there right now. It is time that some of us come to the cross and lay our sins down and invite him to forgive us so that we can forgive other people. For others of us, it means coming to this cross and saying, God, I, I don't know what's causing these reactions in me. I don't know what causes these explosions in me, but God, I want you to heal them. I want you to do something with them. I am repenting. I am surrendering them to you and inviting you to heal them. We're going to close this morning with communion. And communion is this incredible time where we declare the Lord's death until he comes, where we declare the message of the cross with our lives. And Paul says to the church in Corinth, he says, don't, <laughs> don't partake in communion in an unworthy manner. He says, examine yourself. Look into yourself and see, are there areas where I need to practice repentance? Where I need to lay my sin at the cross and allow Jesus to transform it? So I just want to read Jesus' words as we close from Luke 22. For he does just this with his disciples. Turn there a second here. <laughs> what he says in verse 19 here. He took the bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to them saying, this is my body. Given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood, but behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. He's saying this, my body and my blood were poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance is the act of coming to the cross, laying that down, and then turning and living in a different direction in our families. Friends, you have every tool you need in the person of Jesus to do just that.
But I'm going to pray. And then we have two tables in the back of the room. I want to invite you, as, as you examine yourself, as we worship, to, to spend some time with Jesus, to, to really look inward and say, God, where are you calling me to live this out in my family, in my life? And then once you've done that, once you've examined yourself, I want to invite you to partake and declare the forgiveness of Jesus in your life. Pray together. Jesus, you are... You are good, and we are not. We are broken and sinful and hurting and wounded people who, in many ways, just transmit the sin that was done to us, and it just replays over and over and over again. But God, I believe you have a, you have a better story for the families in this church. You have a better story for the families in this community. That, God, your church is a place where people can look at and not see perfect people, not see perfect parents, not see perfect men, perfect women, but your church is a place where people can look and see you perfectly at work in us. God, may that be who we are as a church. May that be who we are as fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters. God, we invite you to move and we confess where we fall short every single day and we invite you to forgive us. We ask you to give us the power to forgive each other. In Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, amen.